Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew root perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, 1 Samuel chapter 10 continued. We're going to continue today in 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we ended our lesson last time as I expanded the spiritual context in which we ought to view the life of the first human king of Israel, Saul, Shaul, who had been appointed on God's behalf by the unique priest, prophet, judge, Samuel. Now, it was not Samuel who wanted Israel to have a king, but, but rather several of the leaders of the most influential tribes of Israel who put this demand upon him. Now, certainly, no doubt, the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, were among those lobbying Samuel to give Israel a king. Now, in hindsight, we see that it was really a coalition of the northern tribes of Israel who wanted to go this route of creating an earthly monarchy that reflected all the Gentile monarchies that were standard for that era. Now, I want to review just a little bit on last week's lesson as a lead-in to this week's. But before I do, I want to make a point that I'll repeat a number of times in our study of the four books of kingdoms, Samuel and Kings. And the point is that we must visualize the Bible as the cliff notes of cliff notes. Okay? It is but the briefest summary of around 4,000 years of redemptive history brought to life through Israel's history. Only the most relevant events are recorded. The ones that have the greatest spiritual importance and the ones that both establish and demonstrate God's character and his justice system and all of this aiming at the goal of mankind's salvation. And even then it is done so succinctly and in biblical shorthand, if you would. Okay. Thus it's imperative that we take the time and the effort to research and learn by whatever means about the customs and the operation of the ancient Middle Eastern cultures and use that as the background and the canvas upon which we paint the history of Israel as given to us in the Holy Scriptures. The time period of the characters portrayed in the New Testament is no more than 100 years. In contrast, the time period of the Old Testament involves several millennia. The time period of the book of Judges alone covers uh, a, a period of time that's three to four times the length of the period covered by the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. So what we have in the several stories told in the Old Testament whoops back up here a little bit there we are in the Old Testament 
is something akin to a series of those green mile marker posts along our nation's highways that particularly in the rural areas come at about one mile intervals. If we assume that what lay, a, lay in the few square feet that surrounds a mile marker post is all there is and all that's pertinent, it seems as though our trip is just leaping from one mile marker to the next. If we ignore the huge gaps that lay in between them, which actually forms 99% of the reality through which we're passing, the result is we don't notice that our route does not consist of a series of singular, lonely, disconnected mile marker posts, but rather our journey is through one continuously flowing and somewhat changing landscape. The mile marker posts are merely a means of helping us find our way and marking our progress. Thus, what we are reading about in the story of Saul and his unlikely ascent to the throne of Israel wasn't accomplished in a vacuum. Years of unnoticed preparation for this moment had been required, and Saul's Kingship was also the groundwork for what was going to lay ahead. And just as we can each look to our past and see the most amazing things that the Lord has done to bring us to this point in our lives. And we wonder at the miracle of how it was all able to line up in such a way without our even having a hint at the outcome. So it was for all the biblical characters. The decisions that they made were done within the context of their own unique life experiences and situations as they were at that moment of decision. The family, tribal, and national decisions made by leaders, even when they were diligently seeking the Lord's guidance, were still accomplished within the context of the current Middle Eastern events and circumstances that constructed firmly fixed boundaries as to what was even a possible range of choices for them to make. Health Weather, terrain, social calm or social unrest, peace or war, poverty or prosperity, the ambitions of neighboring nations, the current internal and external political situations, and a score of other factors all played pivotal roles in the biblical narratives and stories. But the challenge for us as students of God's word is that while most times those factors and circumstances were known to the scripture writers, they didn't always record them. So it's up to us to dig into other sources to discover them. The bottom line is this. Saul was not only a divinely ideal choice for the situation Israel was currently in, He was also a logical 
and practical selection, even though his selection brought with it its own set of challenges that had to be overcome. At this time in history, you see, the tribe of Benjamin was allied with the northern confederation of tribes in Israel. This was the largest alliance of tribes. And as we've seen in earlier Torah class studies, from literally the first moment that Joshua set foot on Canaanite soil, Israel started splitting into political factions. It would take a book to explain it all, and some of it would even have to be speculation as to exactly how it all transpired. But we do know, for instance, that two tribes, uh, Reuben and Gad, and about half of the clans that formed Manasseh, made the pragmatic decision to settle on the east side of the, of the Jordan River, the Transjordan, as it's called in academic circles, rather than enter into the Promised Land. And this caused much religious and political tension within the Twelve Tribe Confederation. As a matter of fact, if you recall our studies, it very quickly almost came to war. And once the nine and a half tribes did enter Canaan, then they too began to split into factions. Oftentimes, geography played a key role in forming these factions. The USA naturally has a greater interest in harmony with Canada and Mexico than it does with Poland or Brazil because of proximity. Due to the great expanse of the oceans that historically isolated the populations of the continents from one another, so it is that the lack of daunting uh, geographical features between nations and people brings interaction, and it brings a blending of societies and cultures. Israel has a natural barrier of mountains, that automatically separates the promised land into northern and southern regions. And then, of course, there is the Jordan River. There was a historical boundary for regions and nations. And at that time, by the way, it flowed at a far greater rate than it does today. And and back then, it formed a substantial barrier. The north is generally more fertile than the south. So a lot more food could be grown, and thus a larger population could be supported in the the northern and the more central parts of Canaan than than the desert-dominated south. The mountains served to act as a transportation barrier, and thus a a communications inhibitor between the Israelite tribes of the north from those of the south. And so relationships between the two groups were much harder to maintain. Then there were the natural rivalries among the twelve tribes that in some cases had to do with who the mother of that particular tribal founder was. Judah, Judah's mother, was Leah, the less favored wife of Jacob, but a legal wife with wife status nonetheless. Ephraim and Manasseh's mother, grandmother actually, was Rachel. Jacob's most favored wife. Dan's mother was one of Jacob's concubines, Bilah. While Gad's mother was another of Jacob's concubines, 
Zilpah. So their national status wasn't as great as it was for Ephraim and Judah's. Even how they were organized by Moses and how they camped together out in the wilderness had to do with family ties. As an example, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun formed one unit camping together on the east side of the tabernacle because their common mother was Leah. And as we see these relationships carry over at times into Israel's new circumstances of a settled life in Canaan, we see how these factions grew and made allegiances. So the selection of Saul, at one comes immediately after his coronation, begins to make a lot more sense when we take these circumstances into consideration. There were reasons that these things happened as they did in all of these biblical stories. And I'm going to point out some of the more outstanding and important circumstances as we go along. Now, as we ended our last lesson, we discussed this wider spiritual context of considering Saul and all that he represented as including that of a sort of failed Messiah. Remember, while because of our perfect and infallible Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth, we tend to think of a Messiah as a one-time-for-all-time happening. In reality, the word Messiah is simply a rather common Hebrew term, Mashiach, which means one who delivers. Every shofet, every judge of Israel was a Mashiach whose rise to prominence was brought about by the Lord in order that they could rescue and deliver one tribe or another from foreign oppression. And since a true deliverer is one who Jehovah raises up, then there will be similarities among them all. Because God is consistent. The same goes with the matter of kinship. Saul, as Israel's first human king, and Yeshua is Israel's last, must have similarities, and of course, they do. In fact, as we look at Saul's life, we see a pattern emerge that is substantially followed by Christ. And I gave you a dozen points within that pattern that compare very favorably. Of course, the most critical aspect of that pattern has to do with who it is that's carrying out the pattern. Of course, the rise of Saul was due to the impulse of men rebelling against the Lord. And so his coronation was kind of a a punishment or a consequence of that rebellion. The rise of Yeshua was at the impulse of God. Men had no hand in it. So Christ was 100% successful. Let's reread a a small portion of 1 Samuel chapter 10 and we'll talk a little bit more about this. We're going to read from uh, verses 17 to the end. That's page 308 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 10 starting at verse 17. Shmuel summoned the people 
to Adonai at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Here's what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up from Egypt. I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But today, you've rejected your God, who himself saves you from all your disasters and distress. You have said to him, No, put a king over us. So now, present yourselves before Adonai by your tribe and your families. So Shmuel had all the tribes come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by families and the family of Matri was chosen and Shaul the son of Kish was chosen. And when they looked for him, he couldn't be found. And they asked Adonai, has the man come here? And Adonai answered, there he is, hiding in among the equipment. And they ran and brought him from there and when he stood among the people, he was a head and shoulders taller than anyone around. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man Adonai has chosen that there's no one like him among all the people? Then all the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel told the people what kind of rulings should be made in the kingdom. And then he wrote it on a scroll and set it down before Adonai. And after that, he sent all the people away, everyone to his own home. Shaul too went home to Gibeah accompanied by warriors whose hearts God had touched. True, there were some scoundrels who said, how can this man save us? They showed him no respect. They brought him no gift. But he held his peace. God had revealed his choice of Israel's first king to Samuel. And Samuel informed Saul that it was him. Now God was not for this in the sense that God, is, that, that God wanted Israel to have a human monarchy. But rather it was that God was giving to Israel what it was that their rebellious and ungrateful character demanded. A human replacement for God. It is characteristic of the Lord that at times He will give His people what they demand. Even though it is both offensive to Him and naively destructive for them. It is a God principle that sometimes getting exactly what we want is more of a curse than a blessing. We even have a rather modern Western anecdote that says essentially the same thing. Be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. I'm not saying that the election of Saul is a curse on Israel per se. But it can't be denied that Saul would be a total failure and caused Israel great harm. Well, at a private ceremony, somewhere in the territory of Zuf, which is in this area, Samuel anointed Shaul as king. But at this point, no one else was aware of this transaction. 
But now that Saul had a little time for this astounding turn of events in his life to sink in, and as a result of Samuel's three predictions coming true, it proved to Saul that indeed God was involved. So now it was time for Saul to be presented to the public. So Samuel calls for a holy convocation to be held at one of his favored places, Mitzpah. You see it located right here. Now Mitzpah had become a place where national decisions for Israel were discussed and announced and where national actions like war commenced. Apparently there was an altar of sacrifice at Mitzpah, probably some kind of more or less permanent structure that housed at least some articles of holy furniture that at one time resided in the tabernacle, and almost certainly the Ark of the Covenant rested there from time to time. Now it may have been that the Ark's home base at this time was at Mitzpah, but more likely it was that the ark was just moved from holy site to holy site as it was needed. So it seems as though Israel had multiple holy sites manned by multiple groups of priests. And we know of at least two different and rival high priests in existence at this time. At least they were leading up to Samuel. So they each presided over separate holy sites and separate groups of priests that were loyal to them. And while this is my speculation, I imagine that because of the political fracture between the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south, the high priests were probably also aligned one with the north and one with the south. And thus there was also two favored holy sites. One in the north, one in the south. Now it would seem as though at this time Mitzpah was the favored holy site in the north, although there are some other candidates like Gilgal and, and Bethel. Possibly it was Hebron down in the south. But it's important to note that all the action that we see taking place in this story of Saul is in the geographical north of the promised land and this wasn't by accident Judah and Simeon the tribes of the southern region had become somewhat isolated politically and socially from the northern tribes of Israel and they certainly weren't all that hot to have a king that would rule over both the north and the south because they knew they'd be getting the short end of the stick after all, Judah and Simeon were rather autonomous at this moment. And they preferred that arrangement to stay that way. Okay. However, Judah wasn't so jaded as to think that they weren't any longer part of Israel. And from a more practical viewpoint, they were no match for the far larger population of the north. Therefore, we don't see Judah and Simeon specifically named as the ones who revolted against the idea of a king over all 12 tribes. But it's not hard to imagine 
that it was the southern tribes who mostly represented the dissenters against Shaul, who are later in this chapter referred to as the, as the B'nai Belial, the worthless men. Again, keep in mind that Benjamin, even though one border was Judah, see here, this is Benjamin, notice how they have one border with Judah, and then the other border is with Ephraim. Right? At this time, Benjamin was much more aligned with the north than in the south. So verse 18 begins now with this usual prophet formula. That is, it begins by saying, here is what the Lord says. Now this is our cue to understand that what's coming is not human. It's not human thought. But literally, it is the mind of God in the form of a message from God delivered by God's messenger, a prophet. Being God's earthly messenger would become the primary job of the office of a prophet. And Samuel is perhaps the first one that we can truly call a prophet built in this mold. Now, naturally, since neither the Lord nor Samuel wanted Israel to have a human king, the oracle that Jehovah would now deliver to Israel through Samuel was an oracle of warning. And it was a reminder that by establishing a monarchy like their neighbors, they had just embarked on a path that would eventually become the bane of their existence. And the problem is, once the genie is out of the bottle, he usually can't be put back in. Interestingly, the first words of the divine message that are spoken reminds us of the first of the Ten Commandments. I brought Israel up from Egypt and rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. Now listen to Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. The same thing appears in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then in the New Testament, Matthew, 20, Matthew 2.14. So he got up, took the, mother and his, uh, took the child and his mother and left during the night for Egypt where he stayed until Herod died. Okay. This happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now I want to make a point here that probably wouldn't ever have become so obscured to the church if traditional Christianity hadn't ignored Holy Scripture and altered the Ten Commandments to suit our religious philosophy based around a Gentile leadership. You see, the traditional first commandment in Christianity is, you shall have no other gods before me. But that's simply incorrect. Okay? In fact, that is the second commandment as presented in Scripture. So because the original first commandment had been eliminated as being too Jewish, and because 
was clear that there had to be ten, not nine, commandments, the Roman church took the second commandment and split it apart and made two commandments out of it. So it all back, all add back up to ten again. The first commandment is, I am Jehovah your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. That is the first of the ten commandments. Now please follow me on this. See, this statement that it is God who brought Israel up from Egypt and freed them from slavery is the quintessential biblical statement about redemption. God is saying, here is the state and condition that you are in as a result of what I have done for you. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. It's already done. I did it. I delivered you from the enemy and from slavery to him. You owe no allegiance to anyone but me. See, this matter is so very critical to understand because this gets so mixed up and affects and distorts so many doctrines. God did not take an unredeemed people to Mount Sinai and give them his Torah, his law, which then saved them. Rather, first, God and God alone redeemed his people through great and terrible acts upon the enemy and only afterward, when they were in a spiritual condition to accept and properly act upon them, he gave his redeemed people his laws. God's first statement to his redeemed people was to announce that they were redeemed. And that it was he who did it. Folks, I've said this many times. The Bible is not for anyone but believers in the God of Israel. The only obedience to God's commands from Holy Scripture that a non-believer is to follow is to become a believer. Without being a believer, God's laws and regulations have no effect upon us or our relationship with Him. The path to harmony with God is not... Follow his laws and then eventually, as a result of following those laws, trust in him. Rather, it is trust in him and then, as a result of that trust, follow his laws. The modern Christian idea that the expected response of becoming a believer is that a person then stops following God's laws is ludicrous on its face. That such a thing has become perhaps the chief doctrine of our Jewish Messiah's church is beyond the pale to me. Why would God commence Saul's inauguration with such a statement? Because he's reminding Israel that they are redeemed. And that he's the one who did it. But then, verse 19 says, But today, you have rejected your God. Oh boy. 
by their demand for an earthly king, Israel has rejected their divine king and their redeemer. As it says, God who he himself saves you from all your disasters and distress, you have decided to replace with a man. Notice the word saves in the midst of that sentence, Yesha in Hebrew. The reason this is important is because saving or delivering is one of the primary duties of a king, even an earthly king. So Israel is abandoning the one who has Yasha saved them from all their disasters up to this point in favor of another, Saul, who they think will do even more for them from this point forward. You know, we have a conundrum on our hands when trying to talk about this concept of God the king versus Saul the king. And our conundrum centers on the definition of terms and on the mental picture that that definition draws for us. What God is as a king is entirely different than what man is as a king. Whereas God wants no image of himself because the visible and the physical is of the least value. For a human king, it's all about image. And what people see is the most important thing to them. Therefore, the general sense that we humans tend to have of kingship can be summed up in the word regal. R-E-G-A-L. Regal. Regal is the catch-all attribute of all human kings. Webster's Dictionary says, Regal means stately, splendid, royal. Having the finest, most expensive clothes. Living in the biggest, most magnificent house. Eating the best foods and being catered to for your every whim. For humans, it's all about the visual and the grand personal benefits that come, comes with the office of being king. Regal is a word that really only pertains to the humanly established monarchies and kings. But that's not at all what God is about as a king, nor will be as king, and you know what? It's not how we ought to envision him as king. Thus, in order that Samuel could introduce Israel's king to the population at large, he had all the tribal leaders come to Mitzpah, and probably the Ark of God was brought there. And they participated in a drawing of lots. And the chosen tribe from the lot was Benjamin. Then the clans that formed the tribe of Benjamin drew lots, and the chosen clan was Matri. 
And then the families who formed the clan of Matri drew lots, and the chosen family was Kish. And then from the family of Kish, Saul was chosen. And when Saul was introduced as king to the Israeli people, or rather to the Israeli leadership, the primary kingly attribute that was offered as proof of Saul being the appropriate choice was he stood a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So Samuel says, do you see, visually see, that there's, there's nobody else like him among all the people? Well, his physical stature was regal. So, that sealed the deal for the leaders of Israel. He looked just like what they thought a king ought to look like. Which was modeled after what their Gentile neighbors thought a king ought to look like. So they got very excited and they hailed Saul. Long live the king! Long live the king! This is the first time, by the way, that Saul is finally referred to as a king. Let me throw out something for as food for thought and then we'll go back and look at a couple of details about this ceremony. <clears throat> the church has painted our Savior Yeshua in good intentions in a regal image. Crown of gold, tall and handsome, penetrating eyes, flowing robes of purple, magnificent banners going ahead of and behind him, splendid, stately in every way. The church has presented this visual of a returning Jesus to the world, and often it's this same in image of him that's created in song and in praise. But how does that compare with what we're told about the characteristics of God and about Messiah, who is God? He was unlovely, a commoner. He was no one that you would ever pick out of a crowd. In fact, after he was mercilessly whipped, he was almost unrecognizable as a human. We're told in Revelation that he'll wear a robe dipped in blood. He told us that the greatest thing we could do for him as his disciples is to help someone poor and downtrodden to care for the most vulnerable. That's the best thing we can do for him. He will lead the charge of the warrior saints at Armageddon, putting himself at the front in harm's way. He'll not be riding on a well-attended and defended royal chariot that's surrounded by bodyguards to make sure nothing happens to him. God didn't want a fabulous temple for an earthly dwelling place. But a human king was determined to build him one because that's how humans think about kings. The Lord doesn't want silver and gold. God is anything but regal. Here's the point. We, need, we tend to think about Yeshua in, in, in regal terms. Just as the Israelites thought of what their king ought to be in regal terms. 
because by definition, regal is a purely human attribute. God is not about regal, but regal is a fleshly and not a godly characteristic. Yeshua has been given power and authority precisely because he fulfilled the ideal of all godly justice and attributes, among which regal is nowhere to be found. Jesus is the anti-regal. He is every pure and righteous characteristic that God says is divinely kingly. And the last thing that involves is image. In fact, although I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, you'll notice that when the Lord picked David to replace Saul, David was, image-wise, the opposite of Saul. And he had no regal appearance at all. He was too young, he was too small, he was too ordinary to be a king in the eyes of most Israelites. David didn't, he just didn't fit the image of a king. At least not that of a typical human king. Enough said. Now I told you that when Saul was publicly chosen, it was done by lots. However, I readily acknowledge that nowhere is the word lot, goral in, in Hebrew, presented in these passages. However, every element of choosing by lot is present as well as the typical scriptural lot-choosing language and formula. There were really only two divine methods of choosing before the Lord, used by Israel at this time. The Urim and Thummim, these two stones, and lots. The Urim and Thummim only could give yes and no answers. And it had to be administered by the high priest, since he actually carried them inside his ritual vest. Since Samuel administered this, the only other means is by lot. And just as lots were used by Moses to select territory for the tribes, no doubt it was lots used here to select Samuel, or rather to select Saul. Now it must be understood that while lots is seen as a game of chance by most societies and certainly in modern times, in Bible, lots done before the Lord was actually a means of the Lord indicating his divine choice. Okay? Thus, we see a very rational, orderly procedure using the process of elimination for the divine choice to be revealed. First, the choice is among the twelve tribes. And then one, one tribe is selected, the next choice is among the dozen or so major clan divisions of, of that chosen tribe, Benjamin. Then when the clan Matri is chosen, the next drawing of lots is among the major family heads. And then finally the individual singled out. So since we all knew going in that the Lord has already selected Saul, it wasn't that the lottery had been fixed because the, divine, because the procedure of the lots, you see, wasn't to determine a winner. Rather, it was to reveal the divine choice all the participants there was another benefit to this procedure Saul would now have yet another proof that he was supposed to be Israel's king and as we've already seen Saul was a man full of doubts 
All right, and this was needed for his sake. Well, in verse 25, we get a kind of cryptic statement that Shmuel told the people what kinds of rulings, what kind of justice should be made in the kingdom, and then he wrote it on a scroll. Okay, here's what happened. The establishment of a human king had been anticipated some 300 years or maybe a little more earlier. And how that king should operate was already determined. And I'll show you where it was determined. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're going to look at, start at verse 14. Read the next four verses. Page 216, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. 216. When you have entered the land Adonai your God has given you, have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me, like all the other nations around me. Well, in that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, this king to appoint over you. You're forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who's not your kinsman. However, he's not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to get more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back that way again. Likewise, he's not to acquire many wives for himself that is so that his heart will not turn away. He's not to acquire excessive quantities of silver and gold. What he has come, when he has come to occupy the throne of his kingdom, he is to write a copy of this Torah for himself in a scroll from the one the priests and the Levites use. It is to remain with him. He's to read it every day as long as he lives so that he'll learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of his Torah and these laws and obey them so that he will not think he's better than his kinsmen so that he will not turn aside either to the right or the left from Adonai's commands in this way he will prolong his own reign and that of his children to Israel these rules listed in Deuteronomy 17 were about how any Israelite monarchy should operate since by means of God anointing Saul and separating him from the rest of Israel, you see, Jehovah made the kingdom of Saul and all future kingdoms of Israel a divine institution and not merely a human government. Thus, unlike the kingdoms of the nations, Israel would put limits on their king rather than the king putting limits on his subjects. Whereas earthly monarchies were all about the rights of the king and the duties of the kingdom, Deuteronomy set up the rights of the kingdom and the duties of the king. Last week and in the previous couple of lessons, we discussed that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a new legal agreement would be set up between Israel's earthly king and God and that it would necessarily or rather and their new king and it would necessarily be administered differently than the legal agreement between God and Israel and this is because God is the perfect divine king but a human king is inherently sinful and faulty 
Well, that new legal agreement was based around Deuteronomy 17. And that's what Samuel wrote on the scroll and set before Adonai. Actually, the scroll was very possibly even deposited beside or in the Ark of the Covenant as once again the phrase, before the Lord, is employed to explain where it ought to be stored. Once that ceremony was completed at Mitzpah, Samuel sent everyone home, and Saul returned to his hometown of Giva of Benjamin, accompanied by men who in Hebrew were called Giborim. These Giborim were Saul's personal bodyguards, men who pledged allegiance to the king. In fact, the passage explains that it was an act of God that these men were willing to accept this duty. Usually in our Bibles, these men are called mighty men or men of valor. It's less a matter of them being great warriors than it was that they were unfailingly faithful to their king. Now, this sounds good. But it simply brings about what Samuel said would happen in chapter 8. That Israel's king would conscript the best of Israel's young men and remove them from their families for personal service to him. In verse 27, we're told that some scoundrels, B'nai Belial, refused to accept Saul as their king. Now understand... Just why they were seen as worthless men. Okay? It was that they refused to accept God's will in this matter. And as I mentioned earlier, there's little doubt that many of these B'nai Belial were members of the southern tribes who weren't keen on a man loyal to the northern tribes also ruling over them. And they also didn't do what was expected that you do with a new king. You bring him a gift when he's inaugurated. What this all means is that Saul had a problem. And Samuel knew it. There was sufficient opposition to his kingship that he couldn't immediately begin to rule and reign merely because the ceremony had occurred. An opportunity to prove himself would be needed so that these dissenters would be quieted. That opportunity would be very soon coming. As a matter of fact, that is what chapter 11 is all about. <laughs>